Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Eleanor McKillop and Professor James Down. Dr. McKillop is a research associate at the Wales Centre for Public Policy, where she investigates the role of evidence in policymaking in Wales and more widely, especially focusing on knowledge brokering and the co-production of knowledge. And Professor Down is the Director of Research at the very same Wales Centre for Public Policy. He specialises in evaluating and presumably improving local government policy and performance, and he's previously researched the ethical behaviour of local politicians. So welcome, James and Eleanor. Thank you, Toby, for inviting us. Hi. So we're going to talk today about uh, your work, and in particular two areas that you've collaborated on. Uh, One is quite practical about the rise of these so-called knowledge brokering organisations and what knowledge brokering is all about in general. And the second is a bit more conceptual about the meaning of the word evidence, as it's understood by science advisors and policymakers and um, perhaps also by knowledge brokers themselves, who knows. But um, perhaps we could preface both of these two discussions with a little bit of introduction about your day jobs. What is the Wales Centre for Public Policy where you both work? So the Wales Centre for Public Policy was launched in 2017 and that followed on from a predecessor organisation called the Public Policy Institute for Wales. So we're basically funded by three organisations, the Economic and Social Research Council, which is the largest funder of social science research in the UK. We're funded by the Welsh Government and we're funded by Cardiff University as well. So three funders and have recently provided um, renewal funding for another five years. So we're hopefully happily in place until 2028. Very good. But what do you do exactly? And I'm guessing you do kind of policy work, but then who do you do it for? So we do a lot of demand-led work. So people come to us, policymakers, practitioners, to kind of uh, answer a need for evidence. So that means that in a way, the, the work that we do is already wanted, whereas a lot of other organisations in the field and knowledge workers uh, follow this more push approach where they they create an output and then they try and push it out and disseminate it to policymakers or practitioners who might not be interested in it. But we also do um, some work that we kind of uh, develop ourselves and formulate ourselves on issues that we think will be coming up as really important issues in Wales. Um, so horizon scanning. So we did work on the foundational economy, for instance, to try and uh, understand what might be the challenges that might be coming up for Wales. We also did some work on children looked after, which is a key ministerial focus in Wales on policy, you know, interest in Wales. And so that as well, we've been working on that policy area for a couple of years. So I would say we work in a co-productive way with both the Welsh government and public services. So, for instance, for the Welsh government, they run an internal policy challenge process. Um, And when those ideas are sort of whittled down from government, they provide us with a, a list of research questions and policy areas they're interested in. And at that point, it's really important that we work with them to understand what is the research question they want us to focus on. What is, is there evidence available that can help to answer that question? So it's working in that sort of co-productive way that we feel as if we can make the biggest impact on, on policy and change. Okay, great. Now, we wanted to talk about knowledge brokering organisations and the research you've done into understanding them. Um, I definitely want to ask, what is a knowledge brokering organisation? And given what you've just said, I guess I also want to know, do you see yourselves, the the Wales Centre for Public Policy, as one of those? Um, So yeah, knowledge brokering organisations, we we started looking into them because we were interested in finding out if there were organisations doing similar work to us. Obviously they are, but every organisation seems to have been set up in a very different way for different reasons, by different people, with different funding models, etc., And also by different individuals, people from civil service, from academia, from think tanks who kind of come and converge into these organizations and so create very different bespoke, you know, setups. But what we think knowledge broken organizations are, they are organizations that are kind of providing and responding to particular evidence needs, either from government or practitioners, public services and so on. And so they blend this kind of think tank and academic approach to evidence and providing ideas and knowledge for policy and practice. So we'll see in the organizations that we looked at in our own organizations and other ones that we looked at, like the Moat Center in Ontario or the Africa Center for Evidence on the African continent, is that they kind of blend uh, this approach of think tanks of providing ideas and being close to government and being responsive with the more kind of academic tradition of, of robustness and kind of 
a transparent approach to research and kind of yeah methodological um, robustness. Um, so yeah, blending the two. Right. And when we first started our research in this area back in 2017, we conducted a review of knowledge brokering organisations because we wanted to see what had been conducted to date, um, where we can try and fill in some gaps. And the definition of knowledge brokering, it was one of those sort of key areas, really, because there were multiple definitions. People use broker, um, they use intermediary, they use boundary spanner, all in different fields. So being clear about what we mean about knowledge breaking is, is part of our research agenda. So, yeah, I think another key criterion to differentiate knowledge broker organisations from other organisations is in this kind of in-between world between research and policy is this concept of evidence. I think, you know, think tanks, they don't really talk about evidence. They'll talk about ideas and academic, you know, academic bodies, academic centres will talk about their research and knowledge, whereas these organisations go on all the time about this concept of evidence. They do evidence synthesis. They look for the best evidence. They look for what works. And so they're trying to kind of create a niche in that space that is already quite crowded of saying that they are doing something very different, which is, you know, relying on the evidence, synthesizing what already exists and packaging it in a way that is really accessible to policymakers, because there's always this worry that there's so much evidence available more and more every day. How do policymakers or practitioners have the time to find that evidence to read an academic paper? They don't have the time to read, you know, long research. They want easily accessible evidence that they can pick up off the shelf and kind of uh, use for their everyday news. Yeah. The term knowledge broker and brokering suggests to me that uh, you see yourselves kind of in between the knowledge producers and the knowledge users, as it were, um, but not producing knowledge yourself, just kind of passing it along. Am I understanding that right? Knowledge broking organisations do all sorts of, of different things. So in our organisation, we're, we're largely synthesising existing evidence. So we're not commissioning experts to conduct new primary research. We're exploiting their sort of previous track record of, of their expertise that they've built up over time. So what we do internally um, is use that sort of synthesis of, of evidence, bring it together um, and pass that on to, to, to Welsh government um, or public services. We found during our research, actually, that knowledge broking organisations do largely similar things. They're either, some actually generate their own evidence, some synthesise in the way that, that, that we do, others provide advice or, or advocate for particular interventions. We're quite careful in trying not to advocate for particular interventions or providing recommendations. We see our role as more as synthesising that evidence and allowing decision makers to, to use that as they wish. Well, also here we seem to be, you know, we kind of talking about evidence as if, you know, it's based only on studies and research that is published and kind of uh, systematic reviews and so on. But there's also other types of evidence. But in the case of Wales, a lot of the evidence that exists elsewhere is not really relevant to Wales. And there's always this issue of translation. How does something that has worked in Norway or Finland or Sweden, how is that going to work in Wales, which is a completely different institutional setup? And so in the case of Wales and our centre, we rely a lot as well on experts, so experiential evidence, tacit knowledge, to try and understand an issue or problem from a different perspective than what is already published in the literature. So not just one type of evidence. Hmm. That's particularly interesting. I've talked to a few people who work in different European countries and who've been involved in setting up or running their own science advice systems. Um, and particularly in the smaller countries, it's funny you mentioned the Nordics because I'm thinking of a, a science advisor from Finland. It seems like quite a common experience that they've gone into things uh, reasoning broadly as follows. Well, Finland or Sweden or Wales or whatever is a small country. And of course, we don't have all the experts on everything right here. So maybe our main role will be to find the evidence that's already been gathered and synthesized around Europe or around the world and present that to our policymakers. And but then their experience, as I recall from the conversation, that that hasn't really worked. You have to do an awful lot of processing for external evidence to turn out to be useful. Or else you have to kind of find your own local expert to redo the synthesis work and analysis to make it palatable or to just make it usable in a local context. That's very true, Toby. I mean, people say in, in Wales that best practice is a, is a poor traveller. So there are issues in sharing good practice within the country. So it's often better to, to learn from other experienced countries that have been there 
before us. And, and countries like Finland and regions like Catalonia are often looked at as comparators to Wales. So whenever we're doing any research, whether we're looking at education or a number of different policy fields, Finland is, um, is often um, a common example that, that we look at. And a few years ago, actually, we were conducting a research about gender equality and we looked to the Nordic countries for, for evidence and, and best practice. And what worked well there was bringing those experts over to Wales so they could speak face to face with ministers and with civil servants to explain what worked in their context and what could be copied, not necessarily copied and pasted back in Wales, but at least to bring those ideas and relate them to the context in Wales. So I think we perform a useful role in understanding the context of Wales, taking the best practice from Finland, or there are other countries that we can learn from, <laughs> and given that understanding of Wales, make that evidence useful and applicable to people in this country. And picking up on what James mentioned before, this kind of co-production of knowledge rather than push and pull, I think in this aspect of the centre, that's really important, pulling the people in the same room, the experts, the academics, the people who know, with the people who want an answer to their policy question, the policymakers, the officials, the politicians, so that they can talk about it together and kind of reach the evidence and make the evidence in the room of what's going to matter to them, rather than having to read the paper on this very one-direction approach to evidence and knowledge mobilisation, which is kind of omnipresent in the literature. This is much more of a construction of knowledge in the same place. Yeah, and another key sort of enabler of making that evidence land is that Wales is a pretty small ecosystem or a small policy community. So it's quite easy to get, say, in local government, the 22 local authority chief execs or, or leaders in a room together with, with Welsh government, just bringing them down to Cardiff and having a discussion. So having close access to ministers and experts in that context is important. And that was shown through the recent you know, COVID situation when in, a, in an emergency, it was quite easy to gather 22 people on, on Zoom in most cases to try and make decisions quickly. Yeah. And I guess your role as a centre, being somewhat created by the government for that purpose, puts you in a good position to be able to convene those things, right? I mean, rather than knocking on the door, you kind of already have a key. Can I add something again? Yeah. Because I feel like that also has an impact over the type of evidence that is presented because we end up with some experts might be the top expert in that field, but they're not very good in front of politicians or policymakers in general. And so that means that that has an impact over who you select or how you select them because the person has to have the knowledge, but also have the ability to communicate that knowledge. And actually, the communication aspect is really important in this case because they might have the best knowledge available, but if they're not able to communicate it properly, then that has issues over how it's received by policymakers and what they're able to take out of that. Yeah, so you're occupying this niche between the scientific community. As you say, it might be other kinds of knowledge. It doesn't have to be like experimental science. Okay, but anyway, between the knowledge holders, let's say, for want of a better term, uh, and, and the policymakers. Does that mean that a knowledge brokering organisation is just a fancy term for a science advisor, <laughs> or at least that you're filling the same niche as science advisors do? Um, so I'd feel like science advisors are obviously an institutional, recognized, protected organization or part of the government uh, research service or information service, whereas this is much more of a arm's length, removed, outsourced approach to gathering uh, knowledge for policymaking and facts. And I think that's actually something that we try to discuss in the research a little bit is this approach of, you know, these are organizations that are kind of, they cost less money to government. And also they can, if it brings up information or evidence that they don't want to hear about, they just ignore it. Whereas I think in the science advice, there are particular processes in place where that science advice has to be consulted and has to be published. Whereas I think in the case of some of these KBOs, they might publish their research anyway, whatever happens. Many of them have got that kind of academic kind of guarantee of whatever we found, we will publish it. But who's going to look at that necessarily? It might not be the subject of a government brief or anything like that. So I think there's that approach of it can produce the knowledge that government wants, but if the government doesn't want to look at that, or if it produces information that the government is not interested in or doesn't want to see, they can just ignore it. And I think it's important to say on that point that all our reports are in the public domain. So part of the agreement we have with Welsh Government is that regardless of the evidence we find, either supporting 
um, what they want to introduce or, or not. Nothing is hidden. So the evidence is available not only for the government, but for all political parties, um, interested stakeholders, think tanks and the public to use that evidence to ask questions of the government and to hold them to account as well. So that sort of independence, even though we are partly funded by, by government, I think is very important. And how are these organisations seen by the policymakers they work with? So we did some research looking at knowledge broking organisations in, in different countries. So a case study in South Africa and one in Canada as well. And we found from that research that those KBOs are involved in complex power relations with, with their governments. So it's commonly found sort of enabler of, of knowledge use is that sort of relationships and, and trust between those providing the evidence and, and those who can use it. So that was pretty familiar. But we also found the importance of sort of more subtle and informal ways of doing knowledge breaking and trying to influence how policymakers thought about evidence and, and what counts as evidence. So there was this metaphor which one of the KBOs mentioned, but actually was also you know visible in the other ones that we looked at, was this constant dance or balance between trying to influence and inform, but also remain in independence. So it's the impact versus independence, which is already something that's discussed a lot in the think tank literature, this idea of the closer you are, the less independent you're going to be and vice versa. So I think here is the same thing, but with evidence thrown in there as a kind of shield against being too close and becoming too politicized. But again, as we just mentioned before, what evidence is presented, how it's mobilized, the, the key role of these organizations in kind of making that evidence digestible, and targeted and bespoke means that there's already a lot of mobilization and manipulation of that evidence to make it approachable and understandable by policymakers. So there's a lot of, you know, not murky processes, but a lot of processing going on, meaning that actually these knowledge brokers have a big influence over what get presented to policymakers and how. And so we know our clients and the other knowledge brokers that we looked at, the other organizations, they know their clients, their policymakers, the individual ministers and officials, and they know how things are going to land and how to present it so that it lands in the best way possible. Yeah, I can certainly see how that would be a common theme. Were there other common themes in the different case studies you looked at? Yeah, we found in our research some similarities. Even though we were looking at case studies across different continents, we found that the knowledge-breaking organisations had similar origins. So in each case, there was a perceived lack of capacity for advice in government. So government wanted a one-stop shop type system in place and the KBOs helped to sort of fulfill that function. Um, and also independence from, from government as well was also important. We found sort of common traits in the literature as well, common themes I suppose, of the knowledge broking literature that, that we want to explore as well. So we found a, a lack of empirics, so that led to doing some case study work in, in those different countries. We found um, a focus on individuals as the knowledge brokers rather than organisations. So that's why we focused on, on KBOs as well. And we also found a lack of research looking at the impact of those organisations. So lots of descriptive papers explaining how these different bodies across different countries worked, but much less on the impact that they were trying to have and did have. And also the role of politics as well. So that was also another key factor and our ongoing research program is going to try and cover these themes as, as much as we can and try and respond to those limitations that we found in the literature. But, oh yeah just picking up on that I was going to say that more and more in our case but also in other organizations we, we saw that what KBOs end up doing knowledge working organizations end up doing becomes more and more broad the more established they are so they start by just doing evidence synthesis and then governments ask them to do more and more bespoke tasks like advice, recommendations, advocacy, etc. So that, that brings you more and more into a more political kind of environment where you make recommendations and what happens if those recommendations are the wrong ones and end up you know, creating issues in the future if policymakers adopt them? Or what if policymakers change their mind and decide that they want them? Then you get caught up in that kind of political side of policy, which I would argue is always there anyway. But knowledge working organisations would say is not there if you're just doing evidence synthesis. So there's a lot, again, of that dance going on of what you take on and what the consequences are going to be. And there's a lot of conversations around that in those organisations. Yes. I mean, we've been pushed in the past um, to outline clear recommendations from the, the evidence synthesis work 
that we do. And when evidence is clear on an issue, it may be possible to do so, though as we all know, evidence isn't always um, clear in that way. So we think it's much better to provide a, a menu of options for, for politicians and policymakers and are much more reluctant to outline clear recommendations because we see that as being the work of, of civil servants and, and government. And a few years ago, the UK's chief medical officer, um, Chris Whitty, who was all over our TV screens not very long ago, uh, he wrote a, a paper about how useful an academic paper is for, for policymakers. And he said that papers often include very sort of simplistic policy implications sections. And actually, academics should steer away from that because he said policy making is a professional skill and most academics have no experience of it. And in his words, it shows. And I like that. It's sort of a quote that I keep in my back pocket when the Welsh Government and other organisations push us to, to be clearer about and what are the recommendations from that. And I will use that quote to help to justify our position that our role is providing the evidence and it's up to the policymakers to decide whether to use that evidence or not. Hmm. That's also quite a familiar debate to me. So from my perspective, so my day job, as it were, when I'm not making podcasts, is uh, with the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. And we also talk a lot about that exact tension of providing evidence and options or going further and recommending concrete policy changes. And... Um, and the, the benign overlords who designed our system saw this problem coming and in a very EU way. Rather than solving it, they, they've kind of institutionalized it. So within our mechanism, there are two quasi-independent halves. One half which gathers the evidence, that's Sapea, that's the academies, and the other half which looks at the evidence but doesn't gather it and then makes policy recommendations, that's the advisors. So you have this firewall between the two, which we maintain, which takes quite a lot of effort to maintain, actually, but it's a way to try and, I guess, have our cake and eat it on the options versus recommendations thing. And I mean, as to how well it works, I don't know. I do know we're constantly having to explain and re-explain the setup to the scientists who work with us. But I think it also highlights how evidence is, con is always discussed as being neutral, objective and so on. And this highlights that actually it never is. And there's the point where you ask for recommendations and maybe that's a different role, but actually all through the process of gathering, generating, synthesizing evidence, there are choices, opinions, values, et cetera, that come into play in selecting and categorizing and mobilizing and so on. So I think that's the argument we're trying to make throughout our research as well. Yeah. Another thing that springs to mind here is that one of the top tips people give that I often give to academics when I'm kind of coaching them in how to approach policymakers with evidence is to say, understand what your policymakers' needs are and make it very clear what the implications of your evidence are for their job, which is very close to saying, make sure you show the policy implications that follow from your evidence. I think it's important to present the evidence in such a way that it's clear that policymakers can use that, but just not to go too far and cross that line in providing clear recommendations for policymakers. It's, it's like, in my mind at least, um, doing their work for them um, I've got a colleague who has gone so far as providing suggested wording for legislation. Now, that may help him if he's advocating for a particular policy change, which he was, but I don't see that as being our role. But I see our role as providing clear evidence, presented in a way that can be useful for policymakers, but to keep that line that I mentioned that Chris Whitty put forward as clear in my mind and not try and overstep that. Right. But like Eleanor said, that doesn't mean that you're completely objective. I mean, because in that process of making it clear to the policymaker why what you're telling them is relevant, you're already kind of putting your own spin on it. And I support Eleanor's view on that, really. So we're aware in the centre of our biases that can be at play at various stages of the process. So that could be biases in helping to determine the research question that we're actually studying, it could be a bias in commissioning a certain expert to actually do the research. So we're aware of that as an issue and, and try to mitigate that by we're working in a team of people so we can challenge some of this about the research question or the expert. And also we speak to a, a wide range of experts as well at the scoping stage of the project. So we get a pretty broad view of the different views and expertise that we have on a particular subject area. 
And in addition to that, we also use project steering groups as well. So to have some expertise from outside to challenge us, um, to make sure that we're answering the question in a, in a neutral way and following the evidence as far as we can. And also we use external peer reviewers as well. So once the report is produced, then we get some expert advice like we would on our academic publications as well. Okay. It sounds like you work a little bit like Sapea does, like we do, in that you don't have in-house experts for these things. You you commission external experts. So while we do generally use experts from, from around the world, so all external experts, we do sort of build up our experience and expertise in particular areas over time. So when the Welsh Government or Welsh Public Services commission us on a particular theme. So in the past, we've done a number of projects looking at net zero, um, on looked after children, on elections. So um, I did a PhD on turnout in elections. So I've worked on a Welsh Government project and are now working with some experts on, a, on another project as well. So gradually over time, some of our staff do build up expertise, but I would say we're mainly generalists. And I was having a conversation actually with a colleague earlier who is now the expert on, on e-cigarettes. But in about two weeks' time, he's going to be an expert on how to use procurement to improve social value. And in a month's time, he could be the expert on how to reorganise the Welsh health system. So that expertise is sort of fleeting, um, but we start from a sort of generalist base. Right, sure. But then the reason I asked that is because we were talking about this, the value-laden nature of the synthesis work and the presentation work to policymakers. And I was wondering who does that then? Is that done also by your externally commissioned experts or is that part done in-house when it comes to communicating with policymakers? So I think it depends how we decide to commission the work or how we decide to you know, produce the work. If everything is outsourced, as in commissioned to an expert, we might ask the expert to do the evidence review themselves. So international review of evidence would be a common output that we'd expect. But if some of it might be done half in-house, half commissioned, and some of them might be done all in-house. So again, it'll depend on who is doing that evidence review and synthesis and what those biases are. Many of them will be academics, so they'll have an understanding of that. But in many areas, so we worked recently on a, a poverty review for Wales. Well, in poverty, there's a lot of debates and um, different camps and discourses and approaches to understanding what kind of problem poverty is and what the origins of poverty are and solutions to poverty. And again, who you will select will have an influence over what kind of evidence review they will conduct. So I think being mindful, again, as James said before, of the biases and making sure that we kind of keep those in check to ensure that, you know, some approaches and views of on that particular topic haven't been excluded. And we do that, for instance, with peer review. So we'll ask an expert in the field who isn't the expert being commissioned to kind of review the report, review the evidence review to ensure that different um, approaches have been taken into account. Also, sometimes we'll have a steering group involving academics, experts and officials in that field who will also look at the input to ensure that we haven't missed out on particular you know, key aspects again. So trying to put in place different uh, steps in the processes to ensure that we are not too biased. But again, I don't think that's possible to be completely unbiased in this field. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement on that one. Um, we also wanted to talk about a different topic, although not an unrelated one. Um, which is this question of what counts as evidence and what kind of evidence different people think should be taken into account. And you've done a bit of research on this, I understand. So perhaps you could talk a bit about the work you've done. Okay, so we wanted to find out what the term evidence means. As we talked about today already, uh, I think no, no one understands it in the same way. Many people have different understandings of what evidence means. And even though evidence is so central to many people's work, so your work in SAPEA, many people who will be listening, they work with evidence every day in research or policy, but actually there's no clear definition or understanding of what evidence is. You might have one in the dictionary or in different studies, but actually from policy area to policy area, this will vary than from particular situation to particular situation. So we wanted to kind of look into that and try and find out how people understand evidence in different ways and what that might be influenced by. So we know that for some people, you know, RCTs, randomized control trials, systematic reviews, that's the gold standard of evidence. That's what the best evidence is. But actually for many other people, evidence can include lived experiences, you know, the individual stories of people. That's a big topic in the UK at the moment. Professional judgment, expertise, as we talked about today already. So all of that, we try to take that into account in our research and kind of 
develop an empirical basis to try and understand this question. Okay, just so I understand the, the scope of your work here, uh, are you looking at different understandings of the term evidence? Like, is it a terminological thing, a conceptual thing? Or, or when you say what counts as evidence for different people, do you mean more normatively? So what kind of different things people will accept or listen to or, or, or take seriously as evidence in their work? So both, both. So this is a, so Q methodology is the method that we use and that was developed in psychology and it's tried to understand people's perceptions and attitudes towards a given topic or term or concept. So it's been used in loads of different areas in politics, in psychology, etc. Uh, and it's trying to kind of bring together this, what you just discussed, this approach of understanding the definitions, but also how many definitions are underlined by values, norms, practices, and so on. And so what we, what we did is a little bit different from a normal survey. It's the kind of mix of quantitative and qualitative methods within this Q methodology. So we selected statements from across newspapers, broadsheets, tabloids, even the Daily Mail. We included quotes from there, the literature, interviews with people. And it was all relevant to the question, what is evidence? What does it mean? And obviously in that, you have statements that could be seen as normative, such as evidence should include professional judgment or evidence ought to, and other statements which could be seen more as definitions in general. But again, that will depend on the on each individual and how they rank those statements. We ended up whittling down those statements to 40 statements, which we think represented the whole conversations about what evidence means. And then doing the study, uh, the participants have to order these statements, which are printed on business cards, in an agree-to-disagree pyramid shape. And so they, they can only most agree with two statements and most disagree with two statements. And then most of the statements are in the middle, in the kind of neutral, more ambivalent aspect. Of, um, and so what this kind of um, method forces people to do is to make choices on statements, because otherwise you, ha- you have some people who will put the 40 statements in agree or 20 statements in disagree and then most of them in neutral. And this is forcing people to make choices and kind of understand within their own mind why they're making those choices. And they might end up with very normative statements in zero or in disagree, or they might end up with very normative statements or what we would think are normative statements in plus four. So again, every statement is interpreted based on the individuals on perceptions. So when we started this research, Toby, I thought that we might have an issue getting participants to agree to sorting and ordering these statements. So when I was part of the the pilot, um, I struggled to do this exercise. So I began trying to pick apart each statement and say, well, how is this defined? What do we mean by this? (laughs) So even though I worked with Eleanor in designing those statements, I ended up sort of trying to disagree with myself. Um, But... After the pilot was, was finished and we went out in the field and did this properly, we found out that I was generally an outlier. I think actually academics in general are really difficult to include in any studies because they'll always question why you are doing it and why they are answering it in this, in this particular way. So I think in general, academics are much more, I don't know, they have to be critical. That's our mindset. That's, we are, that's how we are designed. Whereas I think other people in the policy community might be a bit more used to kind of a bit more certain about their beliefs and why they think in a certain way. Yeah, or maybe just more comfortable, you know, expressing a confident opinion rather than always That's thinking, it. but can I justify it? Do I know the exact definition of each term? Yes. The academics, eh? God love them. It does sound incredibly irritating to me as well, I have to say. I'm glad I wasn't one of your participants. But anyway, okay, so what's the answer then? What are these different meanings or different understandings of evidence? Okay, so we asked 34 people across the policy community, so ministers, um, academics, people in think tanks, etc., to do this survey. And what we found is that there were four key understandings of profiles of evidence and what it means in Wales. So the first one is the kind of evidence-based policymaking idealists, so the EBPM idealists. So these guys believe in the kind of EBPM mottos of evidence being clear, rigorous, the role of science in determining what counts as evidence the importance of randomized control trials and so on. But they are also realistic about the need to adapt those principles to the reality. You can't just rely on RCTs all the time because they a lot of time don't exist, especially in social policy. So they'll say stuff like RCTs are important, but they're not the gold standard. Actually, you have to be a bit more, bit more open-minded. Then at the other end of the, of the spectrum were the more political, um, political profiles. So these people believe that what counts as evidence is kind of 
the subject of power plays and it's um, the subject of politics. So actually, the most important question is who decides what counts as evidence in this in this category. And then in the middle, you've got two more profiles. So the pragmatist and the inclusive profile. So the pragmatist profile uh, here is people who kind of, they believe that what counts as evidence will depend on the given context and the question at play. So maybe if they have to develop policy in children or data, for instance, well, they will look at different types of evidence and understand evidence in a different way from if they had to devise policy in transport or environment. And so here, time and resources are key in kind of determining what counts as evidence because a lot of the time, the policy window will be very short and what they're able to find in terms of evidence, they'll gather. But again, that will be, you know, um, kind of an ad hoc definition of evidence and what might count as evidence for one policy might not be seen as such in another policy area. And then the final profile, again, in the middle between politics and EBPM is the more inclusive view where people uh, believe that what counts as evidence should be broad and all-encompassing. So these people try and be as open-minded as possible about what evidence means. It might include individual stories, expertise, it might in include RCTs or not, and they try and gather as much as possible to create a kind of more holistic understanding of the problem and the solutions. So we've got these four profiles, and we looked at who was in those profiles, so gathered demographic information behind those. So which organizations did these people work in? Was it government? Was it parliament? Was it something else? How long have they been in their role? What is their academic background? What is their highest degree? And so that allowed us to kind of try and understand the factors that might influence why people uh, fit in a certain profile or not. All right. It's interesting. How did the numbers shake out on this? Were most people idealists or pragmatists or, or what? So we found in our research that the highest number of participants fell into that evidence-based policymaking idealist profile. But it's important to know that participants were not sort of wedded to, to the principles of, of EVPM. So they made it clear that, that RCTs are useful, but I don't think that they're necessarily the gold standard. So respondents who fell into this profile wouldn't necessarily say that quantitative evidence is the most important or evidence which is important is, is that which can be counted or it can be measured, all those sorts of things. So you may expect people to say RCTs are the gold standard in this profile, but that wasn't always necessarily the case. So I think this is a useful categorization. So the, the idealist who believes in like clear, rigorous scientific evidence, RCTs and so on, understanding what you just said about these people also having some flexibility and not being too fundamentalist about it. Uh, so you've got the pragmatist who says it depends on what you're trying to achieve, basically. You've got, I think you call them the inclusive or the inclusivist, who says, well, it all counts, you know, stories, lived experiences, expertise, chuck it all in the pot. The, those are fine. Then you've got your fourth category, this kind of political observer who says, well, you know, what counts as evidence really depends on who decides who's in charge. It's all about the power dynamics. M my question is, does that kind of person really fit on the same continuum as the other three? Because it sounds to me like that person's being more of an observer of the situation, kind of answering the question in a different way, you know, rather than saying, what kind of evidence do I think is useful or appropriate or do I use? They're commenting on what other people actually do, you know, noticing how the power dynamics work and so on. So I guess it's like a more descriptive, well, I don't know, it's still a normative perspective, but in a different way. You know, you could be 100% a pragmatist or an EBPM idealist or whatever in terms of what you think should be the case. But then you could also say on top of that, but look at how things really are. It's all political, really. Yeah. So I think we, we wanted to include this kind of normative conversation because we think that's really important in determining what counts as evidence. And I think that actually the political and EBPM are, are both very normative kind of profiles, because EBPM in itself is a discourse, it's how we understand evidence and what it ought to be, whereas the political side is the same, what ought to be evidence is actually the subject of politics and power plays, and, and actually power, as we talked about earlier, is really important in determining how evidence is used, what evidence is counted, and etc. So I think that's why we try to integrate in there, and some of the statements, there's a list of 40 that is available through the, through the research, and you can see in those that there's a kind of mix of terms, so could, should, ought, uh, that kind of lean towards different kind of understandings of evidence as a definition, as factual, as kind of instrumental, as kind of yeah, more normative understandings. And we think that all those fit in the conversations about determining what counts as evidence according to whom. 
and what context. Okay. Were there like points of commonality, apart from the obvious ones perhaps, between these four groups? Did they agree on things as well? So we found, for example, that all profiles agreed that it was important to explain what is meant by evidence. And they all disagreed with the statement that all evidence in the political processes is equal or that evidence is, is a luxury nowadays. So regardless of the profile where we put those participants across those four areas, they all sort of agreed with the fact that evidence is important and is not um, an add-on or, or a luxury. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, did you do any work, or perhaps you could speculate now if not, about why people end up in these groups? I mean, am I born an idealist or a pragmatist, or do I kind of come to that through my experience? So, as I said before, we collected kind of demographic information on the individual participants. So we, we were able to find out how long they worked in their role, what kind of roles they worked in, how long ago did they you know, finish their academic training, what kind of academic training they had. But also in the questionnaire, we had a specific question that asked people, has your view on the sign of evidence changed over time and why? And that's when they were able, without prompts, to kind of discuss their journey through understanding evidence. Many of them will kind of start with this idea that their academic training would kind of have influenced them towards a certain camp, a more political or EBPM view of, of evidence. And then working in the real world, they would kind of merge more into the middle profile, so the inclusive and pragmatist, because they said, you know, we have, these are my views, but actually a lot of the time when they have to work day to day with evidence, especially policymakers in government and parliament, that, that brings them to a much more kind of open-minded, flexible, um, contextual, nuanced and varied understanding of evidence. And they have to kind of juggle with it and find what might be useful in that period of time. Uh, so yeah, so what we found is that the pragmatists and kind of inclusive profiles, their average uh, time in their roles was over 11 years, so 11 and 15 years, whereas the two other profiles were under 10 years. So that we thought that there's a correlation. It doesn't mean it's causation, but there's a correlation there. And again, people, uh, we looked at highest degrees. So the people with the higher degrees, EBPM idealists, were the ones with the highest degrees, so masters and PhDs. So we feel that this idea that they remain longer in academia and kind of have a more maybe theoretical understanding of evidence um, influenced by certain disciplines and kind of ideas, whereas the other people are more in the real world of pragmatic and inclusive understanding. So... I remember talking to one respondent who explained that he had this rigorous, methodologically sound master's training, which he then contrasted with the experience of working inside government where the policy making process was so messy and different types of evidence were used. So he changed his view about how evidence is used uh, the longer time that he, would, he spent in the organisation and working in, in real life practice. But also, I think many disciplines, or especially people from that EBPM profile, would see, you know, RCT, systematic reviews, the best evidence. But in many policy questions, these don't exist at all. You'll have maybe a survey conducted four years ago with 50 people. You know, how, how are you going to use that? That's some of the evidence that these, you know, policymakers have to deal with. How do you do that in a short time? That's what you're able to find. What do you do with that evidence? Well, you have to be a bit more broad about how you understand evidence so that you're able to answer the policy question. Yeah. Fair enough. I think there's a difference, though, between like making the concession, saying something like, okay, an RCT is definitely the gold standard, but unfortunately we haven't got one. Maybe we could never get one in this particular domain for whatever reason, but therefore we uh, shouldn't disregard these other kinds of evidence. I mean, that's one thing, right? But another thing is saying, actually, we don't think the RCT should be at the top of the hierarchy in that way. Even if we had an RCT in this area, it wouldn't necessarily trump other kinds of evidence. I mean, I think you meet both those perspectives when you talk to people in the science for policy community, but they are different. I wonder whether you got any sense from your research or maybe just, just from your speculation about how many people you spoke to still adhere to that kind of theoretical hierarchy of evidence, even if they recognize in practice you can't always go to the top of the hierarchy? Yes, our research is descriptive. We didn't explore that in detail. And even as a centre, we discuss hierarchies of evidence. But to us, we have a sort of a matrix where we would bring in 
all evidence, whether that is lived experience or the results of RCTs, to blend together to determine how we can use that to answer a policy question. We are not just going to do research looking at the results of RCTs, because if we did that, we would not be able to provide useful research on a short time frame to feed into to governmental decisions. So um, the hierarchies of evidence is very important to discuss, and we, we're always discussing it internally. Do you think that people appreciate that these different understandings are out there? Do you think people understand that in different organisations, in different contexts, other people see evidence differently to the way they do? But again, also, even within the Welsh Government and people with the same job title having completely different understandings of evidence, same job title in the same policy area, completely different understandings of evidence. And I thought that was really interesting and refreshing, like contradictory understandings and me. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. But so then doesn't that get confusing? Doesn't it cause misunderstandings? Are people aware of it? No. So I think we didn't ask that question, you know, asking, do you know or are you aware that people have different understandings? But I think that's what came out of the research. And I think, as James mentioned before, you know, they all recognize that we need to be clear and talk about what we mean by evidence. So I think there's an assumption that they know that people have different understandings, but that conversation is not hard. And that's why we started the research. People assume that everyone knows what evidence means and everyone has the same understanding. But actually, that's not the case. And I think that leads to misunderstandings, actually, when it comes to policy formulation. People having different views of what evidence is and this hierarchy, if they believe in a hierarchy of evidence with RCTs at the top and individual stories a bit further down, actually, when people in the same organization like government have very different views, that will have an impact over the policy formulation process because they might... Uh, take into account different evidence. They might not consult with different individuals because they won't be seeing them as sources of evidence. So individual stories has become a really important source of evidence in many policy areas now in the UK, whereas I think a couple of years ago it would have been limited to maybe social care and education. And I think more and more now that's being understood as something, a source of evidence to consult. However, how do you consult it and how you mobilise it? That's still open for debate. Yeah, understood. I mean, I would hope that the work you did will go some way to addressing that? I hope that understanding of what counts as evidence will, will improve over time. So rather than us just producing an academic paper on what counts as evidence and just leaving it there uh, for other people to find, uh, we've produced blogs and a, a short policy briefing. We're doing podcasts like this to try and disseminate uh, the findings from the research to different people so they can increase their knowledge. Um, Ellen has provided training on the Q methodology to, to civil servants in, in Welsh government and we've also set up a, a meeting to, to talk about the results. So after that, I think we have a better understanding of how civil servants react to, to the paper. But from what we've found so far, contacting all participants, they, they're all interested in the results. They're, they're sort of a little bit surprised about the, the profiles that, that we produced. And I think this all builds on um, the COVID time where sort of understanding of evidence improved. We had lots of discussions about the evidence on face masks and vaccine take-up, etc. And we heard the familiar cry of policymakers being led by science or evidence. So hopefully our, our research will sort of build on that and keep the conversation going about what counts as evidence, whether it's RCTs being the gold standard or how important lived experience data is in, in helping to design policy. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And, and that, that's for the policymaking side. How about for the science or science advisor side, or indeed these knowledge brokering organizations, what's the takeaway for them from this? So for the science advisors, the people in the kind of middle, um, that middle world between research and policy, we feel that actually understanding and realizing that there are different profiles or different kind of general views of how evidence might be understood are influenced by different ideas. I think that's important to take into account where you're trying to influence and inform them. So actually some individuals, the pragmatists and the inclusive, the ones in the middle, might be more open to different types of evidence and you might be able to build a certain relationship with them. Whereas the more idealists, so either the EBPM or the political profiles, they might actually only want to hear about one type of evidence or one type of conversation. So again, that might lead to different strategies in trying to inform the policy debate. I see. So it's kind of a, a tactical value. Yeah. And we, we were also talking about, um, when we were thinking about this podcast, we also said that 
there's a lot of discussion in the space as we already reflected today on RCTs and systematic reviews and so on being the gold standard. But actually, there's very little conversations about the quality and the ease of use of this type of evidence versus other types of evidence. And in some cases, other types of evidence might be much more easy to integrate in the kind of formulation process, whereas RCTs, etc., might be much harder to translate to the particular context that you're interested in. And we think that having more conversations around that would be useful because actually what you want to answer a policy question is evidence that is usable, not just the best evidence or what you think is the best evidence. You want evidence that you can use. Yeah, makes sense. Anything to add to that, James? Yeah. For knowledge-broking organisations like us, it's important to understand how policy actors who are trying to influence determine what counts as, as evidence. So most respondents from our research see evidence as only being one factor in the decision-making process. So evidence providers and evidence brokers need to take account of that. They would actually sit across those four different profiles and how they use evidence um, happens in different ways. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for being so versatile to zip here and there and cover many different areas. Um, uh, yeah, and thanks very much indeed for your time. I will put links to the research papers that we've talked about in the show notes for the episode. Uh, and they only remains for me to say thank you very much indeed, Eleanor McKillop and James Down, for taking part in the conversation. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you, Toby. It's been a really interesting discussion. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good.